Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds on this chilly November morning. It's uh, November 13th, 2019. I'm, I'm glad to be back. I won't take very much time. We are in the midst of uh, a busy winter holiday season. So next week we have our uh, Susan Pullen will uh, uh, teach us about all of the acronyms that we might be curious about in behavioral health. And that's the start of our annual Chad Mini Fellowship Series, which will be behavioral health this year. So um, a, a nice session to start uh, about five in a row over the coming months to um, refresh our memories on an important child health topic. And we are heading into then after that, no, no grand rounds the last week of November for Thanksgiving already. And hopefully folks have started to think about or if not already purchased some tickets for the Storybook Ball, which will be December 6th, 2019 in Manchester. Um, so we have a lot ahead of us. But without any further ado, we have Dr. Brian O'Sullivan, Professor of Pediatrics, uh, and our new Chief of Pediatric Pulmonary Medicine is going to introduce uh, a colleague who he's invited for Grand Rounds this morning. Brian. So it's uh, my great pleasure to introduce Josh Boyce. Uh, Josh and I have known each other for too long. <laughs> 1990, I think it was, we met. Uh, Josh did his uh, medical school training at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and then did residency and chief residency in pediatrics at UMass. And I met him when I came and joined the faculty at UMass. At that point, Josh was kind of hanging around, not sure what he wanted to do when he grew up. Um, and uh, um, my co-worker, uh, co-pediatric pulmonologist at that time, Bob Zwerdling, convinced Josh that he should be a pediatric pulmonologist. And Josh went on to do his fellowship at Mass General Hospital in Pediatric Pulmonology, where he went to work in the laboratory of uh, K. Frank Austin, who's a, a leader in uh, um, cell biology in asthma in particular and leukotriene biology. And Josh got very involved in the allergy aspect of pulmonary medicine and did a fellowship in uh, allergy and immunology and is now the Albert L. Sheffer Professor of Medicine in the field of allergic diseases at Harvard Medical School. He's also the uh, Chief of the Division of Allergy and Clinical Immunology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, he tells me he may be the only pediatric trained division chief in the Department of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, he's also associate editor of uh, the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Um, and although not relevant to today's talk, but perhaps of great interest to pediatricians, um, he was chair of the expert panel that drafted the 2010 and 2016 uh, revisions of the NIH-sponsored guidelines for the diagnosis and management of food allergy. So uh, your kids with food allergy, you know where to send them right now. Uh, Josh does a lot of that. Um, so he's here today to talk to us about asthma and the new era in uh, biologic therapy for asthma. So Josh. Good morning. Uh, Brian and I had an agreement that if uh, he didn't say anything embarrassing about me, I wouldn't share anything embarrassing about him. Um, uh, so you fulfilled your part of it. So, um, well, thank you all for coming out and braving the weather. Uh, yeah, I uh, I was last here uh, at Dartmouth nine years ago when my daughter graduated from Dartmouth College, and it's just as beautiful and it's also just as cold as it was then. Uh, so, Brian asked me to come talk to you all about uh, uh, the role of biologics in the treatment of asthma. Uh, and we've sort of entered an interesting point in our history here. I, I like to joke with the residents that I got involved with 
allergy and immunology because I wanted to understand the pathophysiology of asthma and I wanted to help develop treatments for asthma. And that was 27 years ago. And it took much longer than that for the field to arrive at a set of targeted drugs to treat asthma that are based on disease mechanism. Up until that point, we basically had souped up inhaled steroids, souped up beta agonists, which are basically compounds that you find in grind, ground up adrenal glands. So we were treating asthma with ground up adrenal glands. So we now have some monoclonal antibodies to treat asthma, and this presents us with opportunities particularly to treat the most severe end of the disease spectrum, but also with significant challenges. Uh, the challenges having to do with selection of patients most appropriate for these treatments. They're all exceedingly expensive treatments and the issue of whether we can justify that expense uh, for the patients that uh, really should be on the drugs is uh, an open question. And I think for pediatricians, and then there are two biologics now available for treatment of uh, children with asthma. Um, for pediatricians, there'll be a deeper question of whether or not there are any ways to modify the natural history and trajectory of asthma, whether we can identify the kids at highest risk for severe disease and literally change the course of that with biologics. That's an open-ended question. Right now, we don't have any answers, but it's something I want you to think about as I go through today's presentation. So these are my uh, potential conflicts of interest. There's one that is relevant, and I am on the advisory board of Sanofi Regeneron, which makes one of the biologics that I'll be talking about today. Okay, so I wanna start with some very, very basic uh, concepts. The definition of asthma. The definition of asthma really rests with classical physiology. And this is a very, very old definition that's decades old. Uh, classical physiologists recognized that asthma was uh, distinguished from other lung diseases by episodic reversible intrathoracic airflow obstruction, something that you can demonstrate using spirometry and a beta agonist. And if you can demonstrate that, you've essentially made the diagnosis. You don't need any other fancy tools to diagnose asthma. In peds, though, there are some significant challenges, one of which is that many of our asthmatic children are too young to execute a spirometry. And another one is that even severely asthmatic children often revert to completely normal lung function when they're clinically well. So unless you happen to be seeing the child at a time when they are wheezing, their spirometry may be normal and you may not be able to demonstrate reversibility. So pediatricians tend to rely on their eyes, their ears, and their instincts and tend to often rely on empiric trials of medication to see if the kid got better, which is fine. Now, another physiologic feature of asthma is airways hyperresponsiveness. And this is defined as the tendency to bronchoconstrict at very low doses of inhaled smooth muscle active agonists, histamine, methacholine. These are drugs that would make every one of you wheeze if I gave you enough to breathe in. But in asthma, there's a shift in the dose response curve so that they bronchoconstrict two standard deviations away from the norm. And that's not specific to asthma. You can develop airways hyperresponsiveness in a phenotypically normal host following an influenza virus infection, for example. In that case, it's transient. And you also see airways hyperresponsiveness in other lower airway diseases. But it's a very sensitive test for asthma. And both of these features suggest that there is an inherent twitchiness to the airway smooth muscle. And actually, up until about 35 years ago, 
The prevailing view of asthma, at least in the pulmonary community, was that it was principally a disease of airway smooth muscle dysfunction, spastic airways. And then along came the immunologists who got involved in the late 80s and early 90s. And this happened because flexible fiber optic bronchoscopy became available as a research tool. And suddenly, we started to see an influx in the literature of reports that asthma was actually an inflammatory disease, and that everybody with asthma, even mild asthmatics, had persistent bronchial wall inflammation. So maybe asthma is actually an inflammatory disease where the airway smooth muscle dysfunction is a secondary feature of the inflammation. Now, another immunologic feature that is common in asthma is atopy, the presence of allergen-specific IgE. Atopy is a hugely important risk factor for the development of asthma in children, and about 80% of school-age kids with asthma have at least one positive skin test. That number drops in adults to about 55 to 60%, largely because there are many adult-onset asthmatics who have zero evidence for atopy, which tells you right away this is more than one disease. It's a heterogeneous process. It's a clinical syndrome. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So asthma can be divided into physiologic and immunologic components, and we have to bear that in mind when we talk about biologics and how they work. Now, because we'll be talking about monoclonal antibodies that are directed against specific cytokines and pieces of the immune response, we need to define a little bit of terminology. And immunologists these days talk about three arms of the immune response. The type 1 arm of the immune response is probably there to defend us against intracellular pathogens like mycobacterium tuberculosis and perhaps some viruses. And it involves the production of interleukin-12 and interferon gamma. And histologically will result in granuloma formation and macrophage activation. The type 3 arm of the immune response is there to defend us against bacterial and fungal infections and involves IL-6, 17, 22, and 23, and promotes neutrophilic inflammation. And we know exactly what these two arms of the immune system do because there are experiments of nature, humans who lack molecular components of these pathways and are therefore susceptible to intracellular pathogens in the case of type 1 and to bacterial and fungal infections in the case of type 3. Hyper-IgE syndrome is an example of a type 3 immunodeficiency. Now, the part of the immune system that we associate most closely with asthma is type 2. And very interestingly, there has never been a report of a human being lacking components of the type 2 arm of the immune system. And that may not be a coincidence because type 2 immunity plays a number of other homeostatic roles that I'm going to highlight in a minute. Now, this part of the immune system is best known for its role in defending us against helminths. So, you get a worm infection, and you get beautiful eosinophilia, mast cell activation, IgE production, all of which are known to be associated with asthma and are driven by a classical triad of cytokines, IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, and the production of IgE. So when we're talking about asthma, we're mostly talking about this part of the immune system. So how does it work? Well, it works at the start at the barrier cells. And the barrier could be your skin, the barrier could be your endothelium, the barrier could be your respiratory epithelium. These cells are not passive. Rather, they are actually equipped to detect viral infection, 
injury, parasites, and some allergens, particularly the allergens derived from dust mite and cockroach, which are proteases, those will injure or activate the epithelium to produce a set of cytokines. Thymic stromal lymphopoietin, or TSLP, IL-25, IL-33. These are all part of the first response to insults that perturb the barrier. And these cytokines can act directly on effector cells that are resident to the tissue. We all have mast cells in our tissue, and we all have these peculiar little lymphocytes that are part of the innate immune system called innate lymphoid cells, ILC2s, in this case, produce IL-5, IL-9, and IL-13. This is all part of the first response to an environmental perturbation. And then you get recruitment of eosinophils and basophils and of adaptive lymphocytes, T helper type 2 cells. And this, with repeated exposure to antigen, will result in an immune memory response, where ultimately you become sensitized, you start making IgE, you have T cells that are specialized to recognize the same antigens, and you're sensitized, and effectively you're allergic, and this amplifies the whole process. Now, probably a little bit of type 2 immune activation is good for us. And probably happens in every single one of us. When we get flu, when we get a rhinovirus, this is how we repair the epithelial barrier. Because many of these cytokines are specialized to repair the epithelial barrier at small doses. And it's helpful to be able to expel worms. Another very important role for type 2 immunity that has nothing to do with asthma that we know of is a role in metabolic homeostasis. So visceral fat contains many of the same cellular constituents and cytokines, except in the visceral fat, the role is to control insulin sensitivity. And a very important question is, when we start toying with this part of the immune system, are we going to unwittingly create metabolic dysregulation? We don't know. We don't have a big enough denominator to answer that question. Okay, but this is what type 2 immunity does in the eyes of an asthmatologist, which is to produce severe airways pathology. And this picture, unfortunately, is from the lung of a four-year-old child who died in 1992 and whose lung was sent to the laboratory when I was a first-year postdoc. And this is the histopathology of asthma in the pre-inhaled steroid era because the NHLBI guidelines did not sanction the use of inhaled steroids as a first-line treatment for asthma in kids until 2002. And so what we see is plugging of the airway with mucus, replacement of the normal ciliated epithelium with mucus-producing goblet cells, thickening of the airway smooth muscle, profound eosinophilic inflammation of the airway wall, infiltration of the epithelium with mast cells, thickening of the subepithelial basal lamina, a sign of airways remodeling. So we know a lot about the individual cytokine constituents that drive these pathologic features, and that is really what led to the concept of uh, distinct molecular targets and the development of biologics. And it's also what led to the adoption of inhaled steroids. And in fact, one of the hopes of the use of inhaled steroids in children was that if kids start developing this type of disease early on, maybe by treating them early on, you can modify the natural history of the disease. But that did not happen. So this is from one of two equally disappointing papers that were sufficiently disappointing to be published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they essentially asked the same question, which was, 
If you know the at-risk population, in this case, infants and toddlers who had wheezed once or twice and who had atopic dermatitis or a family history of asthma, you know that's the high-risk population. If you start them on inhaled steroids when they're little tots, will you prevent the development of persistent asthma? And as pediatricians, we all know that when you see wheezy tots, they're usually fine in between their wheezing episodes. They have no symptoms except when they get a cold. But then if you look at those kids at age five, six, or seven, if they still got asthma, they're going to start developing persistent symptoms, cough, chest tightness, periodic use of albuterol. And what we're looking at here on the y-axis is the proportion of episode-free days of this cohort of wheezy tots who were either randomized to receive fluticasone, which is the blue line, at 100 micrograms twice daily, or placebo, which is the red line. And you can see that in the two years of drug versus placebo, the placebo group clearly has a downward uh, trend in episode-free days. So they're more symptomatic as they age. The fluticasone group is completely stable. They have almost no symptoms. But then, after 24 months, they're taken off of their inhalers, and what happens? The fluticasone group reverts to exactly the same level of symptomatic controls as the placebo group. Ergo, inhaled steroids control symptoms, but they do not alter the natural history of this disease. And this has been reproduced in spades. Okay, so what can we use to identify the at-risk population? This is a schematic from a very old review article from pediatrics in 2002. And this came from the initial results of the Children's Respiratory Health Study from Tucson, Arizona. And this is one of the largest and most successful and longest uh, ongoing cohort studies looking at risk factors for asthma in children. And the Tucson cohort recognized in one of their initial landmark papers in the New England Journal in 1994 that about 50% of this birth cohort had wheezed at least once by age six. And that many of them wheezed once, twice, or three times during infancy, but they didn't wheeze again after the age of three. And they called those early transient wheezers, probably not asthma as we understand it. But then they started to pick up these other phenotypically distinct groups that had more persistent wheezing. And the strongest group of persistent wheezers, and the one that persisted out into adulthood, I don't know why this pointer's not working, but anyway, the ones that persisted out into adulthood were the kids who had positive skin tests. And this, again, is a very reproducible finding. Many studies have shown that the presence of a positive skin test, allergen-specific IgE, is a super strong marker of the at-risk population who, when they wheeze in infancy, are probably still going to be wheezing at age 6 or 8 or 10. So IgE must be pretty important. So what does IgE do? Hopefully you all know something about what IgE does. The allergist view of IgE is that it's a molecule that binds to a high-affinity receptor on mast cells and basophils, and that when allergen comes along, the IgE receptor is cross-linked, there is an explosive release of mediators that promote bronchoconstriction and edema. And then there is a secondary phase in which the mast cells generate a number of cytokines and chemokines. And you get a classical allergen-induced early response, allergen-induced late-phase response, which can all be blamed on this molecule and these uh, effector cells. 
So it stood to reason that if IgE was an important risk factor for asthma and that IgE-dependent effector cells were important in asthma, then maybe a way of treating asthma would be to develop an anti-IgE. And that is the principle upon which the development of the first biologic, omelizumab, uh, was conceived. And omelizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody developed initially in mice and then genetically engineered so that the molecule is a human IgG in essence so that you won't react against it when it's injected into you. And what this molecule does is it binds to the FC portion of IgE and prevents the binding of IgE to the effector cells. Now, this does two things. One is it sops up the free IgE, but the other one is that these effector cells, in order to express IgE receptors on their surface, need to have IgE bound to that receptor. Because if it's taken away, the receptor gets internalized. So effectively what you're doing by sopping up the free IgE is you're making the IgE receptor disappear from the cell surface, thus making the cells less sensitive. And that'll become important in a minute. So how well does this strategy work? Well, it works well if you're looking at the classical stimulus for an allergen-induced early and late phase, which is inhaled allergen. And this is from one of the first proof-of-principle studies of omelizumab versus placebo. This was a group of mildly allergic, mild asthmatics who were allergic. They underwent um, an allergen challenge, both pre-randomization, which is what you see on the top, and then post-randomization, uh, post-treatment, which you see on the bottom. And you see this downward deflection in lung function, which is, what is what's on the y-axis. That's the early phase response in the first half hour, very rapid response. And then you see this secondary decline in lung function later on, which, by the way, is associated with the recruitment of eosinophils and basophils to the airway. That's the asthmatic late phase. And the omelizumab pretty effectively blunts the early phase and almost completely eliminates the late phase. And again, that's a very reproducible response. So that's an experimentally induced allergen challenge. How does the monoclonal actually work in the wild? Well, it works pretty well. And this is from uh, a beautiful study from the Inner City Asthma Consortium Group, uh, which uh, <clears throat> is a multi-center longitudinal cohort study of severe inner city asthmatics, most of whom are African-American kids who tend to bear a disproportionate share of the brunt of severe asthma. So these are pretty sick asthmatic kids. They're on maxed out therapy. And in this study, uh, the investigators asked whether omelizumab given over a one year period of time would reduce the frequency of asthma exacerbations compared to a placebo. And what you can see here pretty clearly is that over the course of the year, the baseline rate of exacerbation is lower in the omelizumab group. And you have these two seasonal spikes in exacerbations, one of which happens in early spring, and the other happens as the kids return to school. And we all see this. It's a nationwide phenomenon, not regionalized at all. And both of those spikes are essentially completely eliminated. So you would look at this and say, okay, so it looks like IgE is pretty important as driving exacerbations, and probably allergen is pretty important at triggering these exacerbations. <clears throat> Except there's a problem. What causes asthma exacerbations? Is it allergy? It's the common cold, right? So what's up with that? Why should omelizumab work for a disease where the uh, driving force for exacerbations is the common cold? 
Some of the answers started to emerge from this study, which is called the Children's Origins of Asthma Study, or COAST study. This was a very ambitious birth cohort study initiated in Madison, Wisconsin. What the investigators did was to send coordinators out to the homes of over 1,000 kids in Wisconsin, sample their nasal secretions monthly for virus, take histories and do physicals, and try to pick up every single wheezing illness that happened in that cohort and ask which viruses caused the wheezing illness and which viruses predicted subsequent asthma. And without getting into the nitty-gritty of this figure, to get to the bottom, the bottom line, the leading cause of wheezing illnesses was RSV, no surprise. But the strongest predictor of whether you had asthma at age three and age six was whether you wheezed with rhinovirus, common cold virus, which, by the way, is isolated from the nasal secretions of about 80% of kids who present to the emergency room with wheezing illnesses. So... RSV is super important, but rhinovirus, wheezing with rhinovirus, marks the at-risk population. And it turned out that the presence of atopy is a strong risk factor for rhinovirally associated wheeze. Perhaps there's something about being atopic that makes you less able to handle respiratory viruses. So how does that work? So this is data from a fascinating paper that came out almost a decade ago from Michelle Gill, who's a PD um, infectious disease person at UT Southwestern. And she was interested in the viral uh, induction of asthma exacerbations and how that related to the innate immune response. So we all have this population of cells in our circulation called plasmacytoid dendritic cells. And they are the most potent source of type 1 interferons, alpha and beta. These are very important antiviral proteins. And the plasmacytoid dendritic cell has an innate antiviral response, doesn't require pre previous recognition of the virus. It turns out plasmacytoid dendritic cells have just as much IgE receptor as a basophil or a mast cell. And in this study, in the upper left, Michelle showed by flow cytometry that if you have asthma, your plasmacytoid dendritic cells express higher levels of FC epsilon than if you are a non-asthmatic control. More importantly, the level of FC epsilon expression here on the x-axis is inversely related to the amount of interferon these cells can produce when they're challenged with influenza A or B, ex vivo. And importantly, the exact same relationship holds for free serum IgE levels. The higher the IgE, the less able the cells are to make interferons. This gets back to the issue of IgE regulating the IgE receptor. So simple occupancy of the IgE receptor on these cells suppresses the antiviral immune response. Well, so how does omalizumab actually work? <coughs> to come back to the inner city asthma consortium study, these investigators cleverly banked every biological sample they could think of in the freezer, not knowing what experiment they were gonna come back to do with them. And what they did after Michelle Gill's paper came out is they thawed the mononuclear cells, stimulated them ex vivo with rhinovirus, and looked at interferon alpha production. And they compared the interferon alpha produced by kids who had not had an exacerbation during the run-in phase of the study 
and kids who had had exacerbations during the run-in phase of the study and showed that the kids who had exacerbated during the run-in phase made of only about 50% of the interferon as the kids who had not exacerbated. And then they looked again after the one year of treatment. And if you look at the far right, because this pointer is not working, uh, you can see that the kids who exacerbated had a restored interferon response if they were on omelizumab. So this suggests then that actually IgE may suppress antiviral immune responses through occupancy of FC epsilon, and anti-IgE may restore the interferon response as a principal component of its therapeutic mechanism. I'm not saying the mast cell is not important, but I'm saying it may not be the most important place. And this may explain the disconnect between why ATP is so important as a risk factor, but allergens themselves usually aren't the main thing that drives people to the emergency room with exacerbations. Of course, you will see kids exacerbate when they're around a cat or something like that, but more often than not, it's the virus that causes the exacerbation. Okay? Okay. Now, I want to turn to the second target in our story here, and this target is the eosinophil. And uh, I love this story because this is what got me excited about doing immunology research. I started out as an eosinophil person in Frank Austin's lab. And this paper came out the year that Brian arrived at the New England, uh, at um, uh, UMass. And we talked a lot about this paper. This was a bronchial biopsy paper from Jean Bosquet in, in um, France, showing that there was a nice relationship between the number of eosinophils in the bronchial biopsies of asthmatic subjects and the severity of their asthma. And in very plain terms, the conclusion of this paper was eosinophils cause asthma. They are the principal effector cell. If we could develop a targeted therapeutic against eosinophils, we might have something that would treat asthma pretty successfully. Um, now, a few years after that, this paper came out. And this is from Sally Wenzel. Sally is a very brave translational investigator who likes to bronch sick asthmatics. She still likes to bronch sick asthmatics. This is when she was a little younger and she was at National Jewish in Denver. And Sally asked a very important question, which was, why is it that some asthmatics, principally adults with asthma, resist oral steroids? They're treated with oral steroids, but they're still sick. What's up with that? What does their airway look like? So she did bronchial biopsies on several groups of asthmatics and counted the number of activated eosinophils recognized here by an antibody called EG2. Uh, and she found that mild asthmatics who are not on inhaled steroids have a lot of eosinophils in their biopsy. Moderate asthmatics on inhaled steroids also have eosinophils in their biopsy, a little bit less because they're on steroids. And then the severe asthmatics actually fall into two groups. There's a group that has no eosinophils and there's a group that has tons of eosinophils. This was the first observation that asthma's more than one histological phenotype, and that there are people who are still really sick, despite being on high doses of steroids, who have zero EOs, but they're still sick. And then there are people who have lots of EOs, despite being on, an, on oral steroids. So this is a different immunopathologic process than we thought. It's more complex. Um, now, around this time, there was still a lot of excitement about developing a biologic to inhibit eosinophils. And the attention focused on a cytokine known as IL-5. IL-5 is one of the cytokines generated 
by ILCs, by Th2 cells, and by other cells of the immune system. And IL-5 is really the lifeline of the eosinophil. Eosinophils need IL-5 to exit the bone marrow. Eosinophils need IL-5 to survive in the tissues. And there are a number of other functions mediated uh, by IL-5. And so three different monoclonals now target IL-5 or the IL-5 receptor. And three different ones because this was the, one of the earliest targets. I will tell you that mepolizumab, the first of the monoclonals, is FDA-approved to treat asthma in children down to the age of 12 with zero efficacy data. It's entirely based on pharmacokinetic data. It is inhibits eosinophils. It works in some asthmatics in adults. We have no clue whether it's going to work in pediatrics. Um, now, how well does it actually work? This drug and this whole program almost died on the vine because the first five studies that looked at efficacy were looking at non-selected asthma patients, patients of all degrees of severity, patients with eosinophilia, patients without eosinophilia. If you subject that collection of asthmatics to anti-IL-5, nothing happens. But if you restrict it to sick asthmatics, severe asthmatics on oral steroids or high-dose inhaled steroids who still have blood eosinophil counts over 150, the drug actually works. The top graph shows you a successful weaning of the oral glucocorticoid dose of about 40% over a period of 24 months. The bottom graph shows you a reduction in the frequency of exacerbations. Now, it's not a cure. People still exacerbate. In general, the reduction in exacerbations by the three anti-IL-5s or IL-5 receptor <coughs> antibody drugs is about 50 to 30%, depending on which study. But again, no efficacy for asthmatics without blood or sputum eosinophilia. And I'll be very honest with you, in the absence of any data, the vast majority of responders to mepolizumab, to reslizumab, and to brenrilizumab are adult-onset asthmatics with eosinophilia. That is a very different bird than the asthmatics that you all are treating. So we need data on whether or not this is actually going to work for kids. There may be a subset, but for the most part, I think this is an IL-5-driven phenotype, mostly in adults. Okay. So now we're going to talk about a third molecular target, and that target is the IL-4 receptor alpha. Uh, IL-4 receptor alpha recognizes two cytokines, IL-4 and 13, and they have a lot of overlap in function. And it became famous because of its strong ability to induce phenotypic changes in epithelial barrier cells. And this is from uh, one of the first studies to use microarray technology to study asthma. This is from Prescott Woodruff. It's about 10 years old. And this was a survey of bronchial brushings obtained on bronchoscopy from asthmatics who were mild and not on inhaled steroids. And what Prescott Woodruff found is that there were a number of genes that seemed to be consistently upregulated in the epithelium, and many of them were genes known to be controlled by the IL-4 receptor alpha pathway. Um, and uh, three of them, periostin, CLCA1, and serpin B2, are now regarded as sort of the uh, type 2 cytokine gene signature. They're used uh, to survey asthma in many studies. And what you can see from this heat map is there are a bunch of asthmatics that have strong expression of these genes in their bronchial brushings. But there are also a bunch of asthmatics who cluster with the healthy controls. 
which tells you that even in mild asthma, this is a heterogeneous process. The immunopathology is not the same in everybody. Now, IL-4 and IL-13 have a number of functional properties that are very similar to one another. They both induce IgE class switching. They can both in induce mucous metaplasia in the airway. They can induce airways hyperresponsiveness in experimental animals. There's a whole range of very important functions for these cytokines. And it took industry a while to figure out exactly how to tackle this problem because blocking IL-4 didn't work, blocking IL-13 didn't work, but when you start to block the IL-4 receptor alpha, which is shared between these two heterodimeric receptors, one of which recognizes only IL-4 and the other of which recognizes both IL-4 and IL-13, then you have the potential to eliminate the entire pathway. And so that is the principle behind dupilumab. Dupilumab is an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha drug. Dupilumab was first approved for treatment of atopic dermatitis, severe atopic dermatitis in adults. It's now approved down to age 14. It's also approved to treat asthma, and it's approved to treat nasal polyps, and it's very likely to get approval shortly to treat eosinophilic esophagitis. So essentially every type 2 associated disease is going to have an indication for this monoclonal antibody. So why is that? It's because this pathway is essentially generically important across all of these diseases. This is from one of the asthma studies. The top graph is the uh, reduction in oral glucocorticoids. These were sick adult asthmatics on oral steroids. And over a period of 24 weeks, they reduced their oral steroid burden by about 80% on dupilumab and by about 60% in placebo, which tells you if you pay careful attention to your patients and they are on the placebo arm, they're gonna do better than if you didn't pay attention to them. And on the bottom, you see this big increase in FEV1, which is kind of a shock because none of these biologics actually touch the FEV1, except this one. Um, and there are a number of biomarkers uh, that are associated with IL-4 receptor alpha signaling in the airway, exhaled nitric oxide being one, serum eotaxin, which is an eosinophil-specific chemokine being another. It reduces IgE. Very importantly, it reduces exacerbation frequency by 60 to 70%. So it's a pretty good hit. Now, this molecule is currently under clinical trials in children down to the age of two for atopic dermatitis. So we should have some information, hopefully within the next couple of years, about its efficacy, not only for atopic dermatitis, but for subsequent development of wheeze and other phenomena associated with early life atopy. But Important caveat, again, like mepolizumab, zero response for patients who don't have bloody eosinophilia. So we have another drug, super expensive, that works for a subset of asthmatics, but not all asthmatics. All right, now, I'm gonna talk about an upstream player in this cascade. I talked about the epithelium being the first part of this response through the production of TSLP, IL-25, and IL-33. TSLP uh, has a number of interesting targets. It's important for the development of an adaptive allergic immune response through priming of dendritic cells. It also is a direct activator of mast cells, promotes their survival, activates ILC2s. There's a monoclonal anti-TSLP antibody, tezapelumab, which has now been subjected to several clinical trials, most of them quite positive. Uh, this data 
comes from a dose ranging study, um, which looked at, on the top graph, annualized rate of asthma exacerbations in adults, again, with severe glucocorticoid-dependent asthma. But what I want to point out about this study is, unlike the IL-4 receptor alpha story and the anti-IL-5 story, this drug seemed to work even in patients that didn't have bloody eosinophilia, even in patients that didn't have high exhaled nitric oxide, even in patients that didn't have allergen-specific IgE, which I think means that when you start to pick off parts of an immune pathway that are proximal, you're more likely to pick off other downstream pathways than the type 2 pathway. And for that reason, this drug is currently being fast-tracked at the FDA specifically to treat severe asthma that doesn't have that high type 2 signature. And we'll see what happens with that. All right. So circling back now to the mast cell. told you early on that IgE-dependent mast cell activation certainly happens in asthma, but it's not uh, the whole story, and it may be only a minor part of the story, but that doesn't mean the mast cell isn't important. And uh, this is data on the left from that Sally Wenzel paper where she did biopsies on people with bad asthma who did and did not have eosinophilia. And one of the parameters that she collected was BAL fluid to measure tryptase. Tryptase is an enzyme that mast cells leak out when they're activated. And interestingly, in severe asthmatics, the BAL fluid tryptases tend to run high. And it doesn't matter whether you have eosinophilia or not. The mast cells are just leaky. It's, a, it's an asthma thing, not an allergy thing. And actually, these are just steady state measurements. There's no allergen challenge at all. Uh, the data over here on the, your right is from a group in Leicester in the United Kingdom who recognized that in asthma, you have a mast cell accumulation in the airway smooth muscle bundles of the airway, which is a very, very unusual place for mast cells to reside. And they found that there's actually a dose relationship. The more mast cells you have in your airway smooth muscle bundle, the sicker you are, the worse your disease is, and the more sensitive the airways are to methacholine. And this occurs irrespectively of whether there is A to P or not A to P. This is a mast cell asthma thing, not an A to B thing. So is there a way to target mast cells? At the moment, there are no biologics to target mast cells, but there are receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And some of these inhibitors have been around for a very, very long time, uh, used in the treatment of gastrointestinal stromal tumors and chronic myeloid leukemias. They're actually quite well tolerated. Um, and they target KIT, which is a tyrosine kinase that is necessary for mast cells to develop and survive in the tissues. And that led to a proof-of-concept study known as the KIT in Asthma study uh, that was published a couple of years ago, and my group participated in this study along with Elliot Israel's group in uh, pulmonary at Brigham. And the principal outcome in this study, and these were all sick adult asthmatics without regard to whether they had eosinophilia or ATP or anything. It's just all comers with bad disease who were maxed out on oral steroids, high-dose inhaled steroids, long-acting beta agonists, but still had poor asthma control and lousy lung function. And the primary outcome was a change in methacholine PC20 over a six-month period. And the imatinib group did have an upward deflection in the dose of methacholine needed to cause bronchoconstriction. 
they also had a modest but significant improvement in their lung function, which was a surprise because these folks mostly had irreversible airflow obstruction when they were enrolled. Uh, there was a reduction in the serum tryptase, indicative that the imatinib had hit its target, the mast cell. And there was also a reduction in airway smooth muscle uh, compartment mast cells in their bronchial biopsies. You can see there's also a reduction in the placebo group that gets to about 40%, and that's probably because these folks were very uh, closely monitored and reminded to use their high-dose inhaled steroids or oral steroids during the course of the study. So this would suggest that the mast cell is actually important. It may have nothing to do with IgE, and there may be opportunities to target uh, these cells in asthma. But one of the interesting things that came out of this study in the post hoc analysis was that the responders actually tended to be the people that didn't have high blood eosinophil counts. The people who had eosinophilopenia actually had the biggest responses in terms of methylcholine reactivity, and the people that had uh, BAL fluid neutrophil counts that were high tended to have the biggest improvement in FEV1. So the mast cell pathway may actually be important disproportionately, believe it or not, for the people that don't have type 2 asthma. And this is something that uh, the NHLBI is very interested in, and uh, there's an ongoing uh, larger clinical trial to address that question. So to wrap things up, I, I hope I've convinced you that asthma has diverse causes with a final common endpoint of airflow obstruction and airways hyperresponsiveness with inflammation. Type 2 inflammatory disease dominates in children and many adults and may compromise antiviral immunity. And the way that you get to type 2 inflammation in children is generally through being allergic. In adults, there are probably other ways to get there that accounts for that eosinophilic asthma population that is non-atopic. Uh, many therapeutics, all of which are severely expensive, are now available to target type 2 high or, in the case of uh, anti-IgE, atopic asthma. Anti-IgE does reduce exacerbations in high-risk kids. Anti-IL-5 is approved, but there's no efficacy data. And I think it's very important to know whether anti-IgE does change the trajectory of the disease. And that's a question that Wanda Fipotanical at Children's Hospital is trying to answer right now through a study in which she has now been uh, given license to enroll two-year-olds who have uh, wheezed at least once and have atopic dermatitis. Uh, Non-type 2 inflammation is highly relevant, particularly to severe asthma, but currently lacks uh, defined therapeutics. And finally, the disease-modifying properties, or lack thereof, are really unknown and would require early life intervention in high-risk populations to address the question. And I thank you for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thanks. Question. Yes. This is going to sound naive, and I admit that uh, status. Um, you you focused in on sort of single hit type therapeutics. Has anybody tried combining all of these very expensive drugs and clearing the sort of clearing the board? Um, the answer is no. Although that's probably the right question to ask. Um, as an example. Um, uh, we know that IL-4 and IL-5 work hand-in-hand in, hand in the immune system. Uh, when you give anti-IL-5, you drop the eosinophil counts to almost zero, and the eosinophils in the tissue decrease. When you give dupilumab, the eosinophil count actually spikes, and frequently it goes up into the thousands. 
Now, many of those folks are perfectly clinically well with their eosinophil counts in the thousands, but one can't help but think that if you gave them IL-4 and IL-5, you'd eliminate the eosinophilia, and you'd probably get an additional incremented improvement. But nobody will do that study until these drugs get cheaper, if that ever happens. When you start one of these medicines, and particularly the omalizumab in children, which is what we have the greatest experience is, how do you know when to stop or if you can stop? Mm. You don't follow the IgE mm -hmm. after you started. So is there is there an endpoint? Yeah. So as best we can tell, none of these drugs to date have been shown to have any long-lasting benefit. Once you stop the drug, you generally return to square one. And that's pretty much been my experience. Um, and again, speaking here strictly anecdotally, um, there have been a handful of kids, particularly boys with bad asthma, that have benefited from omalizumab and that I've been able to take off once they get through puberty. But because, as you know, some of those kids actually get better spontaneously anyway. So maybe there's a bridge to puberty for some of these kids. Um, but so far, um, at least for the age group that we are enabled to use these drugs, it does not look like any of them produce the benefit that lasts beyond the treatment period. Dr. Carlich, Don. Um, are any of these drugs useful in urticarial illnesses and angioedema without asthma? Yeah, omalizumab is spectacular, actually, for um, for urticaria, and it's FDA-approved to treat idiopathic urticaria. And it often works after the first injection. It, and what are the implications of that for, for the underlying pathophysiology? Yeah, so there I think uh, you have a very clear-cut likely role for the IgE receptor-bearing effector cells, the mast cells and the basophils. What's a little surprising is how quickly it works, um, because uh, the in, in at least in the asthma studies, it looks like the ability to deplete IgE receptors from skin mast cells takes about 11 weeks on omalizumab. And yet here you have a therapeutic benefit that happens like that. And some have used that as an argument that maybe you're targeting basophils because basophils have a very short half-life. They come into the circulation, they last a few days, and then they're replaced by new basophils. So maybe that's actually an, a relevant target for um, urticaria. Uh, so most of these are considered control therapy, and there's a process of prior authorization to get them, and it, it often is rolled out as a gradual addition to a plan. But the data is really compelling for early efficacy. Do you think they could be used in the setting of acute exacerbation uh, when individuals present with status as yeah, it's a, a very good question. The question was whether I thought that they would have a short-term enough effect to be used in status asthmaticus. The only one that I think you could make that argument for would be the IL-4 receptor alpha. Um, and the best, the, the, the quickest response data we have is two weeks, uh, two-week increase in FEV1 of, of 20%. Would it be two minutes? Would it be 15 minutes? There are drugs that give you um, a boost in FEV1 within minutes. The most notorious is actually Xylutan, which is the 5-lipoxygenase inhibitor. And there's some unpublished evidence that anti-IL-33, which is another one in the pipeline, gives you a very rapid improvement in FEV1. So that tells you, I think, that some of these pathways are very, very operative and their effect magnified when somebody's hitting the emergency room. Um, and maybe they would have a therapeutic benefit in that setting, but nobody's done the study yet.
What's going to make these drugs less expensive? Public pressure, market forces. Um, you know, these drugs are all competing for much the same space with the possible exception of, of omelizumab. Um, I think it's going to be very tough to justify three different anti-IL-5 drugs. Maybe that'll exert some pressure on them to create a more economically feasible uh, alternative. Um, one uh, thing that's already started to happen, which has nothing to do with expense but more to do with feasibility, is the fact that dupilumab is given by injection at home. Now, mepolizumab has been redesigned so that patients can give it at home. They're all, again, very cognizant of what the other one is doing. I think what it'll take is for one of them to drop their price, and then you'll start to see the ball rolling. It's kind of like impeachment if one GOP senator... No, never mind, never mind, never mind, sorry, sorry. No politics. Never mind. Sorry about that. Couldn't resist. Yeah. How do you go about choosing a biologic in a patient who has indications for two of them? I think many asthma, asthma patients have indications for either mepolizumab or Zolaire. Sure. How in your practice do you choose one over the other, and is there a role of switching to another one in that population? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so my greatest comfort level is with omelizumab, just because it's been out there for 20 years, used it in a bunch of kids. We know it doesn't kill people, um, and it usually works pretty well. Um, but, you know, when you start dealing with the, with the very sickest end of the disease spectrum, even if a kid has a positive skin test, they don't all respond. If they have eosinophilia, I think it's very reasonable to do a mepolizumab trial. My colleagues who deal with the sick adult asthmatics uh, flip between biologics very frequently. They'll give a sort of an arbitrary time frame in which they expect the effect to be seen, and if not, they'll, they'll flip them over. I will tell you that there is a lot less flipping from anti-IL-4 receptor alpha than from the other reagents. I mean, Karen, you can feel free to pipe in, but that one usually works. Well, I mean, I think that mainly with the timing of when the biologists have come out, we've all had a chance to try omelizumab, and then when Mepo came, then we tried Mepo, and some of those patients did really well. And for those who didn't, then Dupilumab came along. And so, yes, you know, we've, we've, we have been doing some trials. The other, the other mitigating factor uh, that weighs into our decision-making is when you talk about a pathway that's relevant to atopic dermatitis, to nasal polyposis, to eosinophilic esophagitis, and you talk about the most severe end of the disease spectrum, a lot of these folks have more than one disease. That is an important determinant, I think, where it makes a lot of sense to use one versus another. So for those who don't know, Dr. Karen Sublatman is the new chief of allergy immunology here at Dartmouth, and it, yes, it is indeed that Dr. Blattman family. <laughs> so um, She blew us off. She was at the Brigham for a long time. We got, we got her back. Yeah. We got her and her, and her family back yeah. home to Dartmouth. And, and I saw Dr. Klein's hand up, and Dr. Klein was recruited here by Dr. Saul Blattman as an allergy and immunology before moving on to Brown to become the chair of pediatrics. So you had a question, Dr. Klein? Thank you, yes. Thank you for making some clarity in that mediator soup. Uh, it's excellent to, uh, to see that. So if we asked about side effects of the anti-IgEs, particularly the later onset anaphylactic type reactions, what's your understanding of the mediators that are involved there? What's happening there? And most of the anaphylaxis reported for obelizumab happens in the first four doses. Um, so, um, so it doesn't look like it's mediated by a um, sensitization phenomenon. There's some evidence that um, 
that there may be complexes that can cross-link the IgE receptor. But the truth is that uh, nobody has a clue. It doesn't look like it's an excipient reaction. Um, uh, and to some extent, we see this with the other drugs as well, although omalizumab seems to be the one where there's the highest frequency, maybe because of the nature of the population you're treating. These are people who have primed mast cells and basophils with a lot of IgE. Yeah. Well, I will echo Dr. Klein's comment, but thank you for making some clarity of the immunomodulator soup and catching us up to date on the really the state of a state of the art and an important disease for our patient population. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks.